Um, Why don't you turn your Bibles with me uh, to Genesis chapter 11. Uh, We're going to be reading verses 1 through 9. Again, that's Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. If you're using your pew Bible, it's page 6. We've been making a really slow but steady progress through the first six pages of the Bible. Um, with Pastor Bruce. And actually, whenever he texted me yesterday and told me that this is the passage that he, that he was preaching on today, um, I said, great, that's what I just tested my middle school students on. So hopefully I don't mess it up. <laughs> Again, it's Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore the name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Father God, we just uh, thank you. We thank you that that you love us. We thank you that you care for us and that that you've given us your word so that we can know about you and know about what you expect and about what you require. God, just forgive us for when we fall short of what you ask of us. Um, God, help us to uh, be submitted to you, um, not just in part, but in whole. And that we would uh, that we would hear with our ears and we'd understand with our mind and that we would that we'd uh, We'd really believe it in our hearts and then put it into action with our hands. Lord, we just love you and thank you. Help us to do so more. In your name we pray. Amen. Just think of it. A tower that reaches to the heavens. If there's one thing humanity loves doing... From seven-year-olds to 70-year-old moguls, it's stacking things, making things really, really high. In fact, the latest entry into this obsession is the monstrosity called the Jeddah Tower. Ought to be coming up on the screen here. The Jeddah Tower, previously known as Kingdom Tower, is a super tall skyscraper under construction in the port city of Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. When the 3,280-foot-tall Jeddah Tower opens in 2020, that's when it's scheduled to open, it will become the tallest skyscraper in the world. In fact, construction of the landmark tower is estimated to cost around $2 billion. The tower will be the crown jewel of Jeddah Economic City, a commercial and residential project of 57 million square feet that will feature homes, hotels, and offices, as well as tourist attractions. The tower will also feature the world's highest observation deck at 2,178 feet off the ground, 
with a over 5,000 square foot outdoor platform. Not sure I will be there. Before the tower was here, this was not considered a place where people would live, says the chief development officer of the Jetta Economic Company. We are creating an independent city so that you don't have to leave here, he adds. It's changing the mindset of Jeddah. The Egyptians, they built the pyramids. In medieval France, they built all these huge cathedrals and churches. And in modern times, they built New York City, Chicago, and so on. So really, it's a token of strength. It's a token of ingenuity, he says. Like in every city, after money, after power, you want strength. After strength, you want to establish something, leave something for the world. And today, Jeddah is going to have a building which many generations to come will talk about. Like the Jeddah Tower, the Tower of Babel was the greatest building program of the ancient world. It was a monument to fame. But the tower they started was stopped by God himself. And eventually it fell to the ground, becoming a monument to failure. So why did God stop the building program of this great tower? Because the people sought to make a name for themselves in the building of their tower instead of spreading the fame of God's name to the ends of the earth. So they started the tower, God stopped it, and along the way he confused their language and he scattered the people across the face of the earth, all in fulfillment of his purpose to glorify his name throughout all generations. So here's the big idea where we're going. Here's the overarching theme or storyline of this particular story of the Tower of Babel. Notice it in your notes. The Tower of Babel, it is a reminder that man's plans will never stand in the way of God's sovereign purpose being fulfilled. It screams out to us that idea, that our plans, humanity's plans, will never, ever stand in the way of God fulfilling his sovereign plans. As for centuries, people have deceived themselves by thinking that they can actually determine their destinies apart from God. In fact, as Ernest Henley boasted in his poem, Evictus, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. And it is to that end that humanity lives. Proud people think that they can actually call the shots in their life, even if those shots are against the Lord. But the Bible declares in Proverbs 21.30, there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. In fact, what's interesting is centuries later, here at this very place at Babel, King Nebuchadnezzar stood atop his royal palace, and he declared unto himself for all to hear in Daniel 4.30 is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. It was not shortly thereafter then that God humbled him until he learned that the most high ruler is the ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whom he wishes. 
You go back to the book of Proverbs and concerning the plans of proud men. The Bible reminds us in 19, verse 21, many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. These verses are somewhat of a commentary on the Tower of Babel, where we see the pride of humanity planning to thwart the very purpose of God. So what does God do in response? And what does he think of all of this? Well, this is what this story is all about. It's a rather remarkable story. In fact, its relevance for today is astounding. Because the pride of Babel that we see here actually mirrors the pride in our hearts today. And so as we go through this story, the challenge for us is not just to see the story, an ancient story that took place years ago, but to see ourselves in the story. Because it is a mirror of us. It is a mirror of our hearts, of our pride, of our rebellion against God. So let's unpack it here for the next few minutes. Number one, the first thing we see is just that, the rebellion of humanity in the construction of Babel. The Tower of Babel serves as a sequel to the table of nations that we looked at last Sunday in Genesis chapter 10. It explains to us why the nations were scattered. It explains to us why they spoke different languages. And so this story takes place a few generations after the flood when Noah and his family are repopulating the earth. By this time, the population of the world has expanded considerably from just eight people to a much larger number. In fact, one scholar suggests that there were more than 30,000 people living on the earth at this particular time in history. The dominant theme in this Tower of Babel story is that humanity, mankind, wanted to make a name for themselves. But they're doing it in defiance or in rebellion against God. Thus, this story serves as a warning. It serves as a warning to us and specifically a warning to the children of Israel who are getting ready to enter the promised land. Moses is telling the Israelites that if they seek to make a name for themselves as they enter into the promised land, that God will scatter them. He's called them into a nation. They're his chosen people. Abraham, the father of which we will see next Sunday. And he's saying, listen, if we go into this land that I'm given, that God has given to us, and if we think we can make a name for ourselves and build a kingdom unto us, God will scatter us. And he now tells this story as a reminder of just that. If they want God's blessings on their lives, Moses is somewhat telling them, we need to follow him. We need to obey him. We serve him. We are here to spread the fame of his name. And so this story serves as a vivid illustration of what happens when nations or people, groups, or even individuals rebel against God. Notice the rebellion of humanity here. First of all, we see the unity of mankind. In fact, this unity is evident in their common language and common purpose to rebel against God's command. Notice what Moses writes in Genesis 11, 
Look at it with me again in verse 1. He says, now the whole earth. And when he says the whole earth, he's referring to humanity. In other words, all of humanity here had one language and one speech. In those days, everyone spoke the same language. Imagine, there's no foreign language requirement for graduation. And we all say hallelujah to that one, right? There's no need for translators. The human race was united in a way that has never been repeated since the construction of Babel. And this one common language should have promoted a godly oneness of faith in the Lord. But sin, as we have already seen, it is alive and well among Noah's descendants. And instead, this one common language gave way to mankind's one common purpose at that time. To rebel against God. Moses tells us in Genesis 10 that Nimrod was the founder of the city of Babel. This is somewhat revealing since Nimrod's name means we shall rebel or we shall revolt, it perfectly characterizes the heart of humanity. When it says now in verse 2, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Now it's interesting, Shinar is another name for Babylonia, which is located in the region of modern day Iraq. It was a fertile place, and the people apparently liked it enough to dwell there and build a city and build a tower. That seems like a good plan. On the surface, we would not oppose that, except for the fact that it was in defiance of God's command to do what? What we read about, God's command to Moses, I mean to Noah and his sons back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, when after the flood, Noah comes off the ark and God tells him, hey, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, humanity was to spread out and repopulate the earth and take dominion over the earth. And yet here on the plain of Shinar, mankind is doing what? They are congregating and dwelling rather than spreading out and filling. In fact, this very word that Moses uses here, dwelling, or dwelt. It's the opposite of the word scattered in verse 8, which is the story's dramatic outcome. And so mankind's dwelling here in the land of Shinar is in direct rebellion against God and his word to fill the earth. Now, so we see a wonderful thing in humanity. They have one mind. They are of one heart because they have one language. And they are unified because of that. The problem is their unification is all wrong. It's all focused on the wrong thing. It's in rebellion and in defiance of God. We also see here in this story the ingenuity of mankind. So we see the unity, but we also see the ingenuity. And it's evident in their ability to make bricks to build a city and a tower unto themselves. Notice mankind's ingenuity when they said to one another in verses 3 and 4, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. With no stones in Shinar to use in building their city and tower, the people developed new technology. 
And with this new technology, man, new things were possible, like baking bricks in a kiln. And so with this new brick technology, they now can build bigger and better and higher. And now they can build a city. They can build a tower whose top reaches clear to the heavens. Now, what is interesting here is mankind is showing his creative ability as God's image bearers. This new technology, this ingenuity, this ability they have to to think through and develop bricks, make bricks, is all as a result of their creative ability because they're made in the image of God. We see that here. Mankind is showing us that. And at the same time, Moses also wants us to see something. He's the one that's writing the story for us. And Moses is showing us mankind's arrogance in it all. When they use the pronouns, let us, ourselves, and we. And so while man has this ability and this creative ingenuity because he's made in the image of God, instead of putting the glory on God, man is using it for himself and his own glory. Man is showing his pride and his arrogance in this. In fact, Warren Wiersbe writes this. He says the tower that they built at Babel was what is known as a ziggurat. Archaeologists have excavated several of these large structures which were built primarily for religious purposes. A ziggurat was like a pyramid, except that the successive levels were recessed so that you could walk to the top on, quote, steps. At the top was a special shrine dedicated to a god or a goddess. In building the structure, the people weren't necessarily trying to climb up to heaven to God. Rather, they hoped that the god or the goddess they worship would come down from heaven to meet them. The structure in the city were called Babel, which means the gate of the gods. So it was a tower that they were building to the top of the heavens, but make no mistake about it, it was much more than a tower. It was a united effort to join God or even to displace God, to remove God off of the throne and put them on the throne, ruling over their lives, their kingdom. The problem with this tower is not so much in man's desire to worship God, but in its underlying suppositions and even approach. The people assume that our creator God, that we have seen in Genesis, when he created the heavens and the earth, was some type of local deity. One that they could somehow just create in their own image. Also, the people seem to think that they could reach God by their efforts by their superior accomplishments. But this delusion is at the heart of every man-made religion, which teaches that works, our works, your works, is what secures you a right relationship with God. So mankind, to set the stage, used their common language and collective ingenuity to make bricks in order to build a city and a tower. But here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Why? What drove them to do this? What was their inner motivation for building a city, and especially in building this tower? In two words, it's this. It's their pride and their fear. Pride and fear. Notice this, the pride and fear of humanity. 
mankind wished to promote their name, self-exaltation, and to protect their security, self-preservation. In his sermon on this particular story, J.I. Packer calls the Tower of Babel a mirror of the modern world. One commentator put it this way, the elements of the story are timelessly characteristic of the spirit of the world today. The project is typically grandiose. Men describe it excitedly to one another as if it were the ultimate achievement. At the same time, they betray their insecurity or their fear as they crowd together to preserve their identity and control their fortunes. And so what we see here, the motivation is self-exaltation and self-preservation, and that is what's driving the people in Babylon. It's also still what drives people today, just as it drove the people back in Moses' day. The people wanted a name. The people wanted security. And they thought a tower would somehow give it to them. Their pride said, let us make a name for ourselves. That has the same meaning as it does today. Wanting to know that you're valuable. Wanting to know that, hey, I matter in this world. But driving it all is pride and insecurity. It's heads and tails of the same coin. And so their insecurity also said, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They feared that they would be scattered over the face of the earth and die unknown without a name for themselves, without a legacy. Is there anything wrong with building a tower? No. Listen, building a tower, even the highest tower in the world, is not necessarily a sin in and of itself. But the purpose, the motivation for this tower was to defy the very God of heaven. The people at Babel sought to make a name for themselves. And they used, get this, their God-given abilities and resources to do it. What audacity. In essence, they committed treason against God. They used God's gifts, they used God's Resources for self-exaltation and self-preservation. The tower builders, let me tell you, were nothing more than broken people. And the fact that they feared being scattered is proof that their relationship with God and even their unity with one another was shattered by sin. The Tower of Babel becomes the symbol of humanity's rebellion against God. Motivated by their pride, motivated by fear, the people take their bricks and they build their tower taller and taller and taller. They build a name for themselves. They're impressed with themselves. And everything is going exactly as planned, but then God intervenes. And that's when, number two, we see the grace of God in the confusion at Babel. So first of all, we see the rebellion of humanity in the construction of Babel, but now we're going to see the grace of God in the confusion here at Babel. The scene switches from earth to heaven. 
And this is where the whole story of Babel turns. This is the pivot point. It's a gracious reminder to the children of Israel. In fact, it's a gracious reminder to us here today that God is sovereign and man's plans will never, never, never stand in the way of God's purposes being fulfilled. Whenever people follow their own plans, whenever people seek to build their own names, let me tell you, God is not impressed, nor is God idle. God graciously and mercifully responds in three different ways here. The first response, number one, notice and look at it, is the Lord comes down to see the city and tower mankind built. Now, don't miss this, because this fact is emphasized so that we will see something about God. Moses emphasizes this very fact so that we will see God's sovereignty and we will see his greatness. After all, all through Genesis, the first 11 chapters, Moses has been re-emphasizing that God is who? He's the creator God. He's the sovereign God. And so Moses now says in verse 5, and it's the hinge verse in the story, the pivot verse, look what he says. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Now, you got to love Moses' sense of humor here. Because what Moses is doing with that wording, he's actually mocking the people. He is mocking their tower. The people decided to build this massive tower so tall that its tops would reach the heavens. And to them, let me tell you, it was the biggest thing they could imagine. And they were so impressed with their tower. And yet when God decided to see it for himself, he had to come down. God can't even see it from heaven. It is so puny. As one author says, God must draw near, not because he is nearsighted, but because he dwells at such tremendous height and their work is so tiny in comparison. Another author writes this, their tower was so microscopic that the all-seeing, omnipotent God had to come down to see. It was as if God stooped down like a man on his knees and hands and lowered his face to the earth to see their great tower. Of course, we know that God can see everything anywhere. He can see everything anywhere. But when you want to show the ludicrous nature of man's pride in his little achievements, you speak with irony and you describe God as peering down in search of this great tower with its tops in the heavens. And reminds me what David wrote in Psalm chapter 2, verse 40, when he says that God is one who sits in the heavens and he laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You can almost hear God's laughter in the heavens when he came down to see man's great tower. So much for the aspirations and achievements of mankind apart from God. So the first response of God is he comes down to see it all. The second response is the Lord knows the potential danger of corporate rebellion. Next comes the record of God's investigation of what he saw. God recognizes when he came down to see, he recognizes what's going on. And so he says something rather interesting here in verse 6. 
speaking about mankind, look what he says. This is God. Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. Now, please don't misunderstand that verse. Do not think that God was worried or intimidated by what he saw at Babel. God was not threatened by what mankind might do or could do. God is not going back to heaven wondering to himself, oh no, if they band together, what shall I do? Instead, God recognized where this whole endeavor was headed. And his heart is troubled, his heart is grieved by what would happen to humanity if their rebellion against him was left unchecked. They would build up a delusion of self-sufficiency through their false religion and corporate identity. And God saw that if they succeeded in building this tower and making a name for themselves, that they would simply throw off God in attempt to rule the earth, have dominion over the earth apart from God. In other words, in their delusion, they would turn further and further away from God. And in essence, they would even seal their destiny separated from God. And so in an act of grace, in an act of mercy, God does something. He responds. He intervenes. He protected mankind from himself. Now, if you're a parent here, you understand that meaning. You understand what it means to protect your children and in particular, your teenagers, from themselves. And in a sense, that is what God is doing here with humanity. It is because of grace that God would not allow the world to enjoy unity and ingenuity on its own terms apart from God. And though mankind, get this, is disobeying him, and though mankind is actually defying him, once again we are reminded here of God's mercy and grace towards humanity. Which brings us to the third response here of our God. The Lord confuses mankind's language and scatters them across the earth. We see God's mercy in his judgment at Babel. Look what God says in verse 7. Come, let us. Now just stop there. That's familiar language to us, or it ought to be. We have seen that particular phrasing back in Genesis 1 and 2. It's, it's speaking of the Trinity, of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And so God in the plural here is saying, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And of course, what was the result of God confusing their language? Moses tells us now in verse 8, he says, So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Language. Language is a, a unique God-given tool to communicate with one another. 
We don't think often about language. We tend to take it for granted. In fact, the Whitcliffe Bible translators estimate that there are almost 7,000 languages in the world. And it all started here at Babel, where the Lord confused the language of the people. And so just imagine, if you can, the chaos that ensued when God did this. I mean, have you ever been surrounded by people speaking a language you couldn't understand? It's rather helpless feeling. The most vivid memory that I have of that is when Pastor Chris and I took a missions campaign. Uh, we went over to the Philippines first, then we traveled over to Hong Kong, and from Hong Kong we went to Beijing, China. This is back in 2000. Oh, man, 2006, I believe. They were getting ready for... Uh, they were preparing for the Olympics there. And when we got off the plane, entered into the airport, and got out of that airport, it was no doubt we were in a foreign language, I mean foreign country. And nobody spoke English, except for the concierge at the, at the hotel. I mean, you, you walk out, and normally you go around the world, and there's all, you can always find a handful of people that will speak English. Not there in Beijing, at least not at that time. And it was one of the most helpless feelings. In fact, when we'd take a taxi cab to even get, go to uh, a restaurant, we had to get the concierge to write down the name of the restaurant because the, the taxi person couldn't even understand what we were trying to say, and we'd have to show it to them. Here, this is where we want to go. It was helpless. One minute the people were, were united in building their tower, and the next minute they're just staring blankly at each other. And so they put down their bricks and their trowels, and they scattered in confusion. And by changing one language into many languages, God now scattered humanity over the earth. And note God's ironic words. Just as the people said, let us build a tower, God says, well, let us confuse their language. God could have destroyed the people. Do you realize that? In fact, in response to humanity's great rebellion and great sin, what did God do before? He flooded the world. He wiped humanity off the face of the earth except for one man, Noah and his family. And so God would have been justified to do the same again. But in an act of mercy, he is gracious here. He could have destroyed the people, he could have destroyed their city, he could have destroyed their tower, but he chose to scatter them, and in doing so, fulfilled his sovereign purpose. Now, this is the ultimate irony in the story. They built a tower so they wouldn't be what? Scattered. But in the end, they were scattered anyway. Again, it's a vivid reminder to us that man's plans cannot stand in the way of God's purpose being fulfilled. We may think we have found a way to circumvent or defy God's will, but folks, that is just a delusion. As King Solomon later wrote in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. This, by the way, this is the folly this is the foolishness of trying to make a name for yourself. Notice this with me in your notes, coming up on the screen. 
And here's why it's so foolish to do this. Here's the folly of making a name for yourself. Because the name that you make for yourself will not last. It will be in vain. Man's rebellion comes full circle now. The tower builders, listen, they set out to make a name for themselves. And instead, listen, listen, instead they got a name but not of their choosing. Moses concludes in verse 9. Take notice of it. Therefore, its name is called Babel. Why? Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Now what's interesting is the name Babel actually means in Hebrew, confusion. It's a rather fitting name when you're trying to find significance apart from God. Trying to find your identity in this life without God. It will leave you in confusion. The Babylites made a name for themselves, all right, but it was a name that they did not like, nor did they want. It was a name that signified a place of meaningless babble, the site of separation and scattering. Many people think that the city of Babel later becomes Babylon. And throughout the Bible, Babylon is the epitome of human pride and rebellion against God. In fact, all through the scriptures, Babylon represents the number one foe of God and his people. I would throw out to you, in this whole building project here, what's missing? What's missing from this whole tower project? Who is not factored into the planning process? God. He's not in the blueprints. Trying to build a city, trying to build your life or your name without God always ends in ruin. It will not last. Why? Because we were not created to make a name for ourselves. But we were created to spread the fame of whose name? Our creator's name. God's name. Listen, God will not give his glory to another person. Isaiah tells us in 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Listen, we were created in the image of God for God's glory to spread his glory to the ends of the earth. Isaiah again comes and he tells us in Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Our lives ought to reflect the glory of God's name, period. We ought to be the epitome of what the psalmist said in Psalm 115.1. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. Not to me, O Lord. But to your name give glory. Now, as we stop here for a moment, and you just think about this story, 
let me ask you a question. Is your life all about building towers and making a name for yourself? Because let me tell you, that's what the American dream tends to be about. That's what our culture pursues relentlessly. To what extent do you embody the spirit of Babel? Some of you have been making bricks for a long time. Some of you are just now, teens, beginning to make those bricks and trying to find your identity and significance. And like the Babelites, you're hoping to find that significance and that identity and that purpose and that meaning and security in what you accomplish in this world and the name that you make for yourself. But let me tell you, those accomplishments will only give you a false sense of security and significance. And that name that you make for yourself, it will not last. It will end up being in vain. You say, what's the remedy? Oh, there is a wonderful remedy here. God provides a phenomenal remedy for humanity. Notice it here. The Lord came down to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and that is to reconcile us to himself and give us a lasting name in Jesus Christ. That's the remedy. That's the solution to all our problems. The Lord must come down. We have our directions all wrong. You see, we tend to think that the way to get a name is to build a tower from earth to heaven. But this is a story of prideful people building a tower to make a name for themselves that will not last. But there's good news. This is also a story of a loving God. And get this, he is coming down to us. In fact, that is the storyline of the rest of the Bible. But the Lord came down. That's the gospel. Do you realize that? Religion says, build a tower to heaven. But the gospel says, the Lord came down. And the Lord came down to do for us, to do for you, what you cannot do for yourself. To reconcile you to a holy God and to give you a lasting name in Jesus Christ. Now, beware. Because the first thing God does when he comes down is he's going to deal with your tower. And make no mistake about it, we all have towers that we have built. And the question is, are you going to allow, are you going to invite God to deal with your tower? See, the tower you're building, the name that you're making for yourself, it ain't going to last. And so God comes down, and he wants to deal with your tower. He confuses your life. He confuses your plans. He confuses your dreams that you have for yourself. And God does this to humble you because he loves you, and he knows what is best for you because he wants you to know him and to trust him like never before. And some of you are even in the center of this right now, and perhaps you think that God has abandoned you. He hasn't. He's protecting you, and he's drawing you to himself so that he can give you a lasting name in Jesus. This is what God did, by the way, for Abraham when God told him in Genesis 12, 12, I, 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 God says, I will make you what? A great name in a great nation. And that's exactly what God did for Abraham 
through the promise of Jesus Christ. And so here's the question. Who's in charge of making your name? The alternative to making a name for yourself is to let God make your name. But for this to happen, you must trust God like Abraham did. You must trust God to come down, deal with your tower, and call you to a life that is centered not on your name, but on his name. By living for his name, you will then gain a name that lasts for eternity. This story shows us the pride of Babel. But in closing, I want you to see one other thing here. It also points us to the praise of Jesus Christ. Notice this in your notes. The languages and nations of the world are the judgment of God on sin. And at the same time, they are designed by God for the glory of Jesus Christ. Folks, listen to me. There is coming a day when there will be a reversal of what happened at Babel. And rather than separating humanity, God is going to bring people from every nation together in Christ for the glory of Christ. And so, yes, in response to sin, God has divided languages and nations. But the glory of the gospel is that is not a tribal religion. The gospel, listen to it, it breaks into every religion and every people group. As Paul says in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to who? Everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. This final reversal was actually promised in Zephaniah 3.9 when the prophet says, For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. And so the day is coming when the power of sin will be destroyed. Perfect unity will be restored among the nations and people from every nation will praise and worship Jesus Christ. And you say, why? All in fulfillment of God's purpose. You go to Revelation chapter 5, verse 13, and you see this. John gets a glimpse of what will take place because our God is sovereign. Look at this. Look in your notes, and it says that every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb forever and ever. That day is coming. And so if you, here this morning, if you are in Christ through faith in Him, then let me encourage you, leave here praising the One who has redeemed you and given you a lasting name in Him. A new identity in Jesus Christ. And if you are here and you're not yet in Christ, then please know that the God of the universe has already come down in Christ to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He has paid the penalty of your sin. And so trust him and let him give you a name that will last for all eternity. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. And we pray that we ourselves would remember its truth. Lord, 
each of us is tempted to make our way and establish our meaning in this life apart from you. But we ask that you would seal in our hearts the folly of that and remind us that the only name that will last is the name that we find in Christ. May we make him the center of our lives and praise his name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The praise team is going to sing one chorus, one verse. This is your opportunity to respond right where you're seated, to cry out to God. And if you're in Christ, then to praise him. Thank him for the name that he's given you. And if you have yet to receive Christ, then run to the cross. Pray, cry out to him and say, save me, Lord, forgive me. And receive the name of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior.